The title of this morning's doctrinal sermon is two words, worship God, worship God. We are justified in God's eyes. That doesn't mean, though, that our strivings have ceased, now does it? We do not sin more that grace may abound more, do we? We know that from Romans. I must say how grateful I am that Brother Ed asked us to host this event. In fact, Pastor Josh Hammond and Pastor Kurt and myself walked a similar doctrinal path as Brother Ed walked about 30 years earlier from General Baptist denomination to the Southern Baptists. In the Baptist Faith and Message Statement 5, there are seven words that stick out to us that we've spoken about. All true believers endure to the end. All true believers endure to the end. All true believers endure to the end. Those seven words free us from Wesleyan perfectionism. They free us from relaying the foundation of our salvation over and over and over again, don't they? We get to start up building the church like Corinthians exhorts us to do. I find myself imperfect, so I don't strive. That's not the response to our imperfection now, is it? By no means. Do we appeal to every mystery, to mystery in every single doctrine as we're studying? No. There are secret things that belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says it. For example, the hour of the Lord's return is a secret. No man knows the hour of the Lord's return. We don't know it, do we? But there are many, many things in our thousand-page book that is revealed, and those are the things that we are to fixate on. These are for us to learn and for our families to have taught to them until the Lord's return. Amen? Differently, imperfection does not lead us naturally not to care or spiritually not to care. Christ's perfection for us on our behalf actually leads us to care a whole lot more than we otherwise would have. The the lamb slain for the sins of man leads us to live the adage from Hebrews that without holiness no one will see the Lord. So pursuit of what we can know from God's word that has been revealed matters. This is why doctrine matters. This is why we unite, unite not around every single philosophy of ministry to be sure, but my understanding is that we unite around the Baptist faith and message. And we're quite thankful that that Brother Ed helped us get here and asked us to host the 63rd annual session of SWIBA. And we're humbled to be here with you, and we're glad to welcome you. My name's Matt. I've been the senior pastor of this church for 15 years. I've been here 20, and it's been quite a journey. More to the point, Breakpoint Ministries has an author that said this sentence. To understand our corporate worship, we need to look to the place where worship is done most perfectly. Heaven. And that is revealed in the book of Revelation. For examples, the Lamb breaks the seals and inaugurates the new covenant. Elders bow, prostrate in prayer. Silence is a feature in Revelation 8.1, when heaven goes silent for 30 minutes. Trumpets and harps are used. Corporate prayers of martyrs are heard collected in bowls and responded to by God in judgment for salvation. Judgment, as well as the salvation of God's people, is celebrated in heaven. 
One said it like this, and I quote, Praise is the root to God's presence. God is enthroned on the praises of his people, and the seraphim, the elders, the angels, and the saints in heaven are all engaged in worshiping him. We have, as Hebrews says, a great cloud of witnesses watching us, don't we? Our praise and thanksgiving join with theirs and thus ushers us directly into God's presence. We as imperfect look to the perfect for our corporate worship preparations, don't we? We all have agreement that we are to worship God. There's no doubt two or three dozen worship leaders here today. I think some think that intent in worship is enough, that personal worship is sufficient. And we certainly wonder how clear Scripture is about who we worship with and when. What I would submit to you this morning is regardless of how specifically we answer those questions, that we can all agree that God does care how we worship, that we are supposed to worship according to the precepts in this book to the best of our ability, that we are to strive until striving cease to have our worship imitate heavenly worship, even as we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And God is going to answer that prayer. So I want to urge you, brothers, to a renewed focus of energy on preparing yourselves and others to preach the word and to pray the word and to see the word through the ordinances today. The benefit of this renewed focus on preparing corporate worship by the word with energy, this text says, will be beatitudinal blessings. Blessings, blessings, blessings. So let's stand for the reading of God's Word. It'll be 10 verses from Revelation 19. After this, I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. And has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, who, you who fear him, small and great. Verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure." For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Or your translation may say called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
May God bless the reading of his word and administer grace unto his hearers. You may be seated. So I propose we look at the first three verses to see how we should renew our focus on preaching the word. And then verses four through seven for our focus on praying the word. And then finally, verses 8 through 10 for our focus on seeing the word through the ordinance specifically of the Lord's Supper that is intimated here. So first, let us renew our focus in preparing ourselves and others to preach the word. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Let's review them. After this, John saw what seemed to be a loud voice of a great heavenly multitude crying out in the first of four mentionings of hallelujah comes here. Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has avenged the great prostitute, that is Babylon, the harlot, the great prostitute. He has judged the great prostitute, rather, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And they cry out again, hallelujah, and they're celebrating the end of the ages of the ages, the forever of forever of the smoke of judgment coming up of those permanently judged because of their rejection of salvation in Christ alone. So, so three thoughts here on preaching the Word. Uh, we, we, I think, three thoughts. One is um, that God is the center of it, start to, start to finish, and that we shouldn't neglect either salvation or judgment, that both have a factor here, and we see that in this text. So first, think about in the preaching of the Word, Think about the primacy of God. Certainly, horizontal things are happening, and they should, because the upbuilding of a church requires horizontal focuses. But our main focus, right, should be on God. Like, we gather for corporate worship to worship God. I think we all agree on that. And so, when we come together, this word hallelujah is instructive. It means praise Yah or praise Yahweh. The chief end of man, as it's been said, is to praise God. It's to bring Him glory. It's to worship Him. But sin frustrates our worship. Preaching fuels our worship. All four usages of hallelujah in the New Testament come right here in Revelation 19, 1-10. That puts the emphasis on God. So we should study His attributes. Revelation is full of them. Revelation 1 is just an attribute of Christ, after an attribute of Christ, after an attribute of Christ. If you're looking for a prayer of praise to shape one or read one in service or for your family worship time or whatnot, Revelation 1 is great. Really, the entire book of Revelation is great. In Revelation 19 and 11, you're going to pick up on another section where it's just attribute of God, attribute of God. God is glorious, and that's our focus when we gather together. In fact, even picking up on this word hallelujah that's translated straight from Hebrew to us, it's used in the Psalms, the header and footer, Psalms that are to be sung. And so we have in the Psalms the usage of the word hallelujah, and it's about bringing praise to God. So there's, there's intimations about corporate worship throughout the usage of the word. Revelation begins very early in the book in chapter 1, verse 3, with this phrase, blessed, one of several blessings. We have one in our focus text today. Blessed is the one who reads aloud these words, so reading of the Scriptures. And blessed are those who hear, so hearing of the Scriptures. Blessed is the one who reads, blessed who hear. Blessed are the ones who keep what's written, for the time is near. So God is the focus when we gather, and we should preach both salvation and judgment. And you know this, but because the text has it in there, I thought maybe God would want to remind us of this. 
I'm under no illusions that you don't know this. If you look at the text there, it says, salvation belongs to God, verse 1. Salvation belongs to God. Now, the word belong is elided. It's not in the Greek, but it's implied. And the word our is certainly there and important. Our God. Notice the prolificness of our in this text. Our, 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 our. And so what we have here is an indication that salvation, even though it begins individually, it doesn't stay that way. It fastly becomes an us. It's not just me and I'm saved. It's us and we're saved, right? It's both and. It's not either or. God has joined that together. And so we don't want to separate it. We're saved individually. We're justified, but we're quickly adopted, ushered into a family, and that family is in us. And this text is replete with that theme as it talks about the bride of Christ. So we preach salvation. We preach salvation as belonging to God. Jonah says that salvation belongs to God in Jonah 2.9. And so we don't have to shy away from God's involvement in our salvation, however we define the finer points of that. We know we were bought as a price, as Romans and brought at a price, as Romans and Corinthians says, and that God purchased our salvation. And that's, that's why we gather. Salvation is wonderful because it's God wrought. We look not just to ourselves. We look to the Lord to see how it is that we got where we are in Christ. Our intimacy with God was frustrated because of our looking to ourselves and our own merit. But when we look to Christ, we found joy unspeakable, full of glory, didn't we? The chain of salvation declares that you're justified, but then you're adopted. And when we gather in corporate worship, in large part, it's about the adopted family of God gathering together to be upbuilt by refocusing on the God who saved us. That's salvation. It might be said that sanctification is happening in our corporate worship when we gather as the church. So we don't really remove the allure of TV church or private church at home by arguing with folks about it or by imitating the tactics of culture. We remove the allure by pointing them to the God who is, right? We remove the allure of ducking out of corporate worship by engaging more fervently in corporate worship. The sinfulness of man only gets motivation so far down the line. The glory of God does the heaviest lifting and pointing people toward salvation. The Bible uses many metaphors to describe the church, the corporate body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the household, the flock, the fold, the family. A hundred little things happens when the church comes in to be shaped by the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, every Lord's Day. Amen? I mean, that's, that's, we're renewing that focus this morning. It's not that you don't know that. We're telling us what we told ourselves. We're being reminded. And, and that's really what the gathering is for, is to be reminded of what we know and to go deeper and deeper into the journey, the implications of this great salvation that belongs to God. But so does judgment. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, these 24 elders are talked about holding bowls of incense full of the prayers of the saints. It's a, the indication is that God is pleased to answer the prayers of the martyrs and the prayers of the saints that have been mistreated by worldly Babylon, whether they were mistreated through her seductive allure or they were mistreated by her outright persecution. The prayers of the saints are heard in the throne room. Our voices are heard in heaven when we pray. And so judgment is an important part of preaching a full gospel, a real full gospel. Judgment is an important part because justice is the heart cry of every believer, is it not? And divine judgment will preach. We can preach about how God will vindicate 
every sacrifice of every saint. And this text talks about that. Revelation 19 is a cycle of judgment declaring Babylon the harlot's pending hell. Why? Not only for their persecution, but also for their immorality. The corrupt on the earth with immorality is not something that we need to be imitating when we preach. We need to preach messages of purity, messages of marriage, messages of what the bride is to be like, whether it's pre-marriage, in marriage, or after marriage. We need to contrast the bride and Babel the way that Revelation 19 does, and it does it with two suppers, verses 7 and 9 and then 17 and 18, but we won't get to that just yet. That'll be our third point. Our first point is now completed. Preach the Word. Have renewed energy for preaching the Word, which it necessarily encompasses reading the Word and reading it with verve. I appreciate the brothers that read the Word with verve this morning. Up, it was great. I'm grateful for that. It moved me to hear those words read. I could read them on my own, but hearing them read in here with these people, it, it said things to me. Hearing you pray those words said things. It ministered to my soul, and I think that's part of the equation. It's part of the process. So let's renew our focus on preparing to preach the Word and seeing that as important based on what we see in Scripture and no less in Revelation with God's declarations. The second point is let us renew our focus in preparing ourselves and others to pray the Word. Corporately, I'm talking about, to pray the Word in our example, to pray the Word in our songs, and to pray the Word even as missions. I'll explain. Let's look at verses 4 to 7 briefly. It says, And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Which is what the fancy people call mirrorism to mean all kinds of people. Short people, tall people, people from every tribe and tongue. Small and great, every kind of person. Incidentally, small and great is used to describe the types of people that will be judged as well in Revelation. So we have salvation and judgment again on display with a phrase like that. But there will be all kinds of servants. This is a, this is a, a, a clarion call for missions, to be sure. Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Now, much could be said about this. This could be a sermon in itself, but we'll have to track quickly. We'll have to track quickly. I know you've been having problems with this mic. Do I need to grab the other one? Okay right now? All right. So let us renew our focus in preparing ourselves and others to pray this word, the word of God. So these are elder figures, regardless of how you slice it. Some talk about how the 12 tribes of Israel then provide a prototype for the, for the 12 apostles, and you get to 24. I, I, don't, I don't know. We don't all have to agree on that. But what we can see here clearly is that elders lead us well in worship, that whoever is leading worship has a responsibility to put the accent where the accent is supposed to be. As I've already said, we see the elders holding the bowls of the prayers in heaven in Revelation chapter 5. And here we see these 24 elders and the four living creatures, the seraphim, falling down and worshiping God, and in a sense leading us in worship, using these two transliterated Hebrew words that we know, they're ubiquitous in Christian culture, and particularly in worship, amen and hallelujah, amen and hallelujah. Those words are corporate worship words. That's the freight that they carry. They're corporate worship words. And we need to be well-led in worship, and our leaders in the church usually are employed primarily, not exclusively, but primarily to lead God's people in the worship of God, to lead the membership of the church in corporate worship. At least that's my understanding of the job description. And so when we structure 
the service around the gospel to offer prayers as well as preaching and singing, which I think singing and prayer is closer akin than what we might always realize. When we structure our prayers, our prayers are not just transitional moments in the service. They carry real gospel weight with the people. And you know that when you hear a godly man pray. I mean, when you hear a godly man pray, and it's a, if, especially if he's doing like Dr. Whitney says, and he's praying the Bible. It's a great little study to do, by the way. He's praying the, praying the scriptures, praying the Bible. When he's praying the Bible, you just, it's got the, it pops. It has this power when he prays because of the words from scripture that he's praying back. And, and it's simple, smart. It's simple, smart. But it is smart because, it's, because God knows better than we do. So here we have the, the elders, in a sense, setting an example. And, and we need to set an example as well. We don't always have to do the leading, but we need to see that the leading is done well. As one brother said to me as we were praying over this text and preparing this text for today and talking about the text, he said, you know, the preacher is responsible for every aspect of the corporate worship service, from the call to worship to the benediction, not just the sermon. As important as preaching the word is, praying the word is too, and singing the word is too. And it definitely doesn't mean that we micromanage everything, but it, it does mean that we don't abdicate concern for it, that we care about it, that we see it as a packaged good. Whenever we gather together, we need to pray the word with fervor and set an example, and even when we delegate, we don't need to abdicate. And I said already, but within this second point, songs is important. We sing the word. I almost don't even need to say that because that's the one thing we all know. We're going to sing. And we've sang together this morning already, and that has been wonderful, and we're going to do it some more. In fact, Lord willing, we'll sing hallelujah, what a Savior, to end this sermon. And that's exciting because hallelujah is all over this text, right? Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. We get like a quad of it. It's, it's here. And it's important. And so singing together is important, but especially that we sing the Scriptures I'm not going to get into styles of worship songs or worship wars or any of that. That's, not, that's beyond the scope of anything it would even be proper for me to talk about here. But just to say, I think we all agree that in our corporate worship, we need to sing the Word, right? Like, this needs to be where we get a lot of our lyrics. It needs to be how we come up with our songs. That needs to be our lexicon of songs. And hallelujah really gets us down the road to that as we, we seek to sing the Word and be well-led in singing the Word. And to model singing the word. Elders equip elders. Members equip members. The bride is built up. We've been granted or given this opportunity to get ready for the day. And singing is one way that we do that. It's, it's our worship. So to, to say it a little bit differently, based on verse 7, when we sing, we sing with many voices who have a reverential fear of God, but also a joy. Those things go together somehow. They don't seem like they do, but this text puts them together, fear and joy. Verse 7 says that we have rejoicing or joy in giving him his due glory. So corporate worship should simultaneously make us warned and make us smile, make us afraid, but make us glad. And so it's not a, a jocular, jovial tone when we come together, but structural, but structural scriptural worship helps us to be free from a jocular and jovial tone and helps us to move us toward a, a, a reverent yet joyous tone. I think we actually get gladder in our worship when we get closer to what heaven shows us that we should be about in our tone in worship. This is one beggar trying to tell another beggar how to find bread. I'm not ab advocating that we're getting this right every Sunday. This saying it seems to be freeing. Scriptural structure seems to be more freeing than constricting. 
And I'm grateful for that. And this word seems to talk about that as we pray the Bible. We are equipped and we are, we are led. One more word about this before I move on to my third and final point. Uh, what I so appreciate about the SBC is Baptist polity, the independence of the local church, the voluntary cooperation around a common confession, the Baptist faith and message. And I think that that Orthodox Baptist polity whose principled worship it was led to by having such sound doctrine or, or the approach, the, the hope of sound doctrine, I think that that worship then therefore, because it was so rooted in the word and rooted in concern for doctrine, as best as I understand the Triennial Convention and the history of the SBC from having studied it for seminary and whatnot, that actually led to the overwhelming concern for missions. That it led to, uh, as one preacher said, death-defying missions that it led into it, that they weren't separate, that the, the, the proper and, and properly placed focus on corporate worship was not a, a separate thing from missions, but that this led to that. I think that's, is that fair enough to say? That they go together, they're not what God hath joined together, let man not separate, you know, that, that sort of a thing. So I was thinking about that in relation to this small and great singing together in heaven and how the nations are going to be joined together, some from every nation certainly judged, but some from every nation glad in the Lord and worshiping. And, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking about how we, how we discuss a doctrinal sermon and a mission sermon. And, and this is certainly the doctrinal sermon. That's what Brother Ed asked me to do. And that's what I'm trying to do here with the brief time that we have. But, but I've thought about it in these ways, and in particularly with one metaphor about how worship fuels missions. I, I had a professor in seminary, and he said that you can feed your marriage and keep your ministry. But if you lose your marriage, you lose your ministry too. And this professor was very specific in how he said that. He wanted to impress upon all of us seminarians not the underimportance of ministry. I mean, we were in seminary after all. But the primary importance of marriage. And I think the metaphor plays in Revelation 19. We can keep our worship. We can feed our worship and keep our missions. But if we lose our worship, we lose our missions too. I would not want to impress upon us the underimportance of missions. By no means. We're Great Commission Baptists, after all. But rather, the fueling importance of worship. Kind of like your healthier marriage is for your healthier ministry. By parallel. And if you want to disagree with me, do it over coffee in the hallway, because I'm sure you'll be able to correct me and tell me where I was wrong. But it seemed like a big idea to traffic in this morning, thinking about this text. Worship itself is witness, but corporate worship also equips missions. Our amens together matter as we pray the word, which also necessarily involves singing the word, and we prepare to do so. Some of our richest times in private worship of God is in preparing for the corporate worship. We know this. We know this from doing it. So we are moving toward missions by investing in corporate worship. As one pastor said very ubiquitously now, it's a ubiquitous statement, missions exist because worship doesn't. That's a way that he said it. So it's not, that it's, not under, it's not undermining the importance of missions. It's saying that's how we get there. It's the road to get there is our heartfelt worship of God. That's what we're saved to do is worship God. Worship is eternal. So we get to preparing worship through reading and preaching the word, as well as praying and singing the word, and then finally, seeing the word. And how do we see the word? It's when we set up the Lord's table and we have the Lord's supper. Sometimes to baptism. That's another ordinance where we see the word. But this text lends itself to the Lord's prayer. Or I'm sorry, to the Lord's Supper, not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Supper, seeing the Word, where we have, where we have the Lord's Supper together. So 
Think about seeing the word from this text, and let's reread verses 8 through 10 for this third point and see what we, can, what we can draw from it. It says here, It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And it, it explains what that metaphor means. Those fine linens are the righteous deeds of the saints. So sanctification, pursuing righteous deeds, pursuing holiness. Verse 9, And the angel said to John, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these words, these are the true words of God. And then John fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said, don't do that. This happens a couple times in Revelation. No, 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 no. Sensory overload for you, I know. But don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. So so the the heavenly host, fellow servant with earthly man, exiled on this island of Patmos, they're fellow servants. And so that you don't worship the created, whether that created currently resides in heaven or on earth, you worship God, right? Lots of instructive stuff there. And so he, he, he said, you can't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. And then it says to end the quote, worship God. So let's consider renewing our focus in preparing ourselves and others to see the word through the Lord's Supper as we think about the marriage metaphor here as well as the Lord's Supper itself and correction where need be. Maybe we just need a little bit of correction by this word this morning. God might be going to bless us through that. So Briefly, think about marriage with me. So in the first century, betrothalment was more binding than our notion of engagement today. To, to break off an engagement, or in that case, a betrothalment, was to constitute a divorce. And, and you know this if you think biblically, because you remember how Joseph felt so conflicted about Mary's pregnancy during their betrothalment, right? And he was afraid he would have to divorce her. And that always confused us at Christmas time because we read Matthew 1 and 2, and we're not really sure what to make of that. So marriage, the betrothalment period of marriage, was was really an assurance of marriage. This is why Joseph felt so conflicted, as I've said, and our time now as the church is more like a betrothalment with a better husband than Joseph to come than it is like our modern notion of an engagement. This wedding, to put it differently, is not getting broken off. That gets back to those seven words I led with. This wedding we're going to, this wedding supper, is not getting broken off. It's going to happen. But that doesn't lessen our need to pursue the righteous deeds of the saints to get ourselves dressed, to get ourselves ready for that day. Now, does it? It's both and. It's not either or. It's the assurance of the day, and it is the laboring in sanctification as we're getting ourselves dressed for the day. We need to be readying ourselves for that day as a pure bride, of, pure bride betrothed to Christ. And so I think sanctification happens when we gather faithfully for corporate worship. As the saints are being made pure by the ministry of the Word of God, as the declarations of God are being offered, we're being more and more contrasted with worldly Babylon, far from the coercive and pure Babel, we are sincere and pure as a bride. And Hosea uses this metaphor, and Ephesians makes this metaphor clear, between Christ the groom and the church the bride as being a primary emphasis in the marriage of man and woman. That the gospel is seen in every faithful marriage. So upstream from our concerns in the hallway about gender fluid confusion and the politics of gender, we need to redouble our efforts in the church for visible marital purity. We need to not whitewash tombs, but pray for resurrected marriages. We need to stamp out cohabitation and adultery and rampant pornography. Corporate worship helps us see how important faithful relations are to our witness to the world. It fuels missions and corporate worship because corporate worship fuels sanctification. 
And that's really what the Lord's Supper is doing as well, as we're not just preaching and singing and, and praying the Word, but we're seeing the Word. So the Lord's Supper itself, we are invited to it, or we are called to it. It's interesting, that Greek word invited is kaleo, and ek kaleo forms the compound word that helps us understand the church, ekklesia. So we're called out as God's people, the church, but we're called to the marriage feast of the Lamb, this wedding supper. So every time our kiddos in church see the supper served to baptize believers in good standing with their local church, they see a picture of the exclusivity of the marriage supper. In a way, the last supper that Jesus hosted points to the Lord's Supper, and then also by parallel, the Lord's Supper, which we host, points to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Do you see that? And that's to be seen. So Sunday can be a struggle for tired mamas, right? We all know that. My wife's here. It's a struggle just to get here with the kids. But I want you to consider today how seeing the Word has an impact for preaching salvation and judgment, the whole counsel of the Word of God. It has an impact for preaching the exclusivity of the gospel to our children. And it is a gospel that must be preached every generation, right? We don't just inherit being born again. We must preach it. They must receive it. And so, Mom, as I'm thinking about my appreciation for Timothy's mom and Timothy's grandma, do you remember what she did in getting them to the Word every single week? They were made what? Wise for salvation. That's what Timothy and any siblings he might have had were made, was wise. Mamas have such a place to play in getting us to see this word. They have such a, a valuable, invaluable role, even if they're limping exhaustedly through a Sunday morning and getting to the Lord's table and getting to the Lord's day. And so life may limit, but corporate worship is a blessing. It's a beatitudinal blessing is what this text tells us. And so we preach Christ to our children and we preach Christ to everyone that comes. We don't have to bemoan who isn't here. We preach to who is here. And we do it through preaching the word in our corporate worship. We do it through praying the word, which involves songs. And we do it also through seeing the word through the right administration of the ordinances. Now, none of us has this figured out. I certainly don't have this figured out. But we do need correction by the word in everything that we do, Right? I mean, the words, a good father corrects his children. God the Father, Hebrews 12 says, the way that he loves us is to sometimes what? To discipline us or to correct us. So I just want to ask all of us today, myself included, based on a, a fresh reading of Revelation 19, 1 to 10, and thinking about Revelation, is there any way that God wants to correct our preparation style for worship? Is there one thing? Is there two things? Are you confused like John was, for a moment at least, about the object of our worship? We all need to be recovering Christ as our high priest and a centrality of worshiping God rather than simply fellowshipping when we gather. What kind of correction might I need, you need, we need, in order to have corporate worship be what it is to be in the life of our members, of our churches, of ourselves? We all need recalibration from time to time. But do recalibrate, though, to get the focus where it is supposed to be. Now, the church leadership development team, chaired by Brother Steve Taylor, I'm on that team. And when we take our break today, we'll be back at a table. And at that table, we will have books that the association is giving away titled Corporate Worship. And what we're going to do is not just give you a book, but if you will take one of these little worship 
tear-offs that you got today, and if you'll kind of print your name on it and write your email on it and tear it off and drop it in that box, then not only will we give you a book, but we will send you an email to let you know when we're going to do a study, to give you a link to join the study, and to talk over a lunch hour trying to kind of unpack some of these things about corporate worship that might help our churches, might help us. And if you've got it mostly figured out, I say this with all sincerity, please join the call so you can help me. That's so important. Iron sharpens iron, right? Isn't that what the Word says? So join the call. I'm looking forward to working with our Swiba Church Leadership Development team for that, and I hope you will take a book. Uh, probably enough for at least one per household is what we think we've got it set up for. And I hope you'll, even though it's a, a little bit tedious, write your name and, and, and drop it in there because I know that we can grow in this, and this doctrinal sermon hopefully helps us to see the opportunities we have before us. So we all agree that we're to worship God. Intent, as good as it can be, may not be enough. Where Scripture is clear, and Revelation seems to be clear, we need to, like John, have our worship conformed to the patterns of heaven. We need to have our personal worship also subjected to the corporate worship when we gather together, because salvation is not only individualistic, but it is corporate. And in this doctrinal sermon, I want to conclude by urging you, brothers and sisters, to renew your focused energy on worship, and insofar as you have the task, on preparing yourself and others to preach the Word, to pray the Word, and to see the Word in corporate worship. Even if intent were enough, God is known to give us more than enough. And until the perfect comes, we strive together to worship less imperfectly to the glory of God and the blessing of man. This matters for every Christian because every single Christian needs the ordinary means of grace every single week. Far from boring, we are invited, we're granted, we're allowed, we're encouraged. And until the perfect comes, let's take care to prioritize the worship of God. Would you stand with me as we pray and sing hallelujah? What a Savior. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we offer this time of prayer, of petition and request to you, knowing that you hear us. I want to pray right now for this theme of restoring us. Please restore us where we need restoration. And I want to pray for the brother pastors here to refresh and renew and revive. May we be found worthy of operating in greater truth and transparency and trust. Remove the invisible walls that separate us. Join us together around what matters. I want to pray for Miss Linda, for Ed's family, and for Brother Ed's colleagues, especially as we approach next Wednesday. I want to pray a prayer that one of the associational pastors emailed us on the survey form when he said, pray that the executive committee would follow the directions given by the messengers and pray for healing and transparency and understanding amongst all. Lord, I petition you for our new executive director in the state and his family. I ask you, Lord, to help the three churches in our association that need senior pastors, Gateway, New Covenant, and Keck. I pray for missionaries and all of the ministries that are displayed in the Family Life Center today. I pray for our brother pastors like Larry and Rusty who have labored to lead us today. I pray for our nation that needs more professing Christian citizens to return to corporate worship and abandon the ways of worldly Babylon. And I pray for every member of every church represented here to be presented complete in Christ like Colossians 1.28 says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.